are animals people too? What does the Bible say? Well, last time we saw some of the reasons for the idea that animals are people too, where some of these thoughts seem to have come from. The idea of evolution and Eastern religious thought that has permeated our society, the humanization of animals, and the urbanization of our societies. But today we'll see some of the differences and indeed the major and most important distinction between animals and humans. I'll also be sharing from my book, Devotions for Dog Lovers. Uh, thank you for joining us here on the Rock Dove Publications Quill, and uh, I hope you enjoy today's program. Your host has spent decades studying the Bible in the original languages. He holds degrees from the University of Wisconsin, Moody Bible Institute, Asbury Theological Seminary, and Bethel Theological Seminary. With the help of some of his friends, in 1994, Dr. Rako founded a national volunteer ministry to hunters. He is an author, dog trainer, and speaker. Tom served as a full-time pastor for 36 years. Now here is your host, Dr. Tom Rako. As a young boy, I loved to watch Lassie. It seemed almost every episode contained a scene where the collie star of the show would bark in such a convincing manner that her hearers recognized that something was wrong. Often either Timmy, Mr. and Mrs. Martin, Timmy's parents, a friend, a passing stranger, or an animal was in trouble. Of course, Lassie would return to the farm or find someone who would follow her to the person or animal in danger. Perhaps most amazing was the way Lassie always arrived with her rescuers just in the nick of time. It makes, or at least used to make, for a great Hollywood production. However, unlike a script with imaginary problems created to make a television show, we humans have a real problem. Indeed, our predicament looms much larger than any of the characters in Lassie ever faced in front of the camera. While it is true that there are times when the creator of the universe may send a canine, close friend, or even an angel to intervene on our behalf, in this case, they can't help. Because according to the Bible, our big problem is based on the fact that we have all rebelled against God. Indeed, every single one of us needs rescuing. We all need help. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. Yes, we all have a spiritual problem. We all, outside of a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, are separated from God. There is no animal, angel, or mere human that can save us from our moral dilemma. This is something even a dog can't do. But the good news is, God has already sent someone to extricate us. The Bible says, But when the time had fully come, God sent his Son born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive the full rights of sons. Galatians 4, verses 4 to 5. Yes, God sent his son to deliver us from the judgment we all deserve. He did what no dog could do. As Paul told the believers in Rome, you see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Romans 5, 6. All we have to do is accept the gift of God, Romans 6.23. God provided the present that everyone needs. 
When we come back, we'll continue looking at that hunting argument, animals are people too. You can learn more about the book that tells this true story and others. For example, find out how dogs in Bible times were used to fulfill specific prophecies. Discover how some dogs with disabilities did some amazing things. Hear how a dog collected money for orphans. Learn about the first canine to be launched into outer space. Gain insight as to how God is using dogs in our world today, and much more. To order your copy of Devotions for Dog Lovers, go to the Rock Dove Publications website at www.rockdove.com. Again, to get your copy of Devotions for Dog Lovers, visit rockdove.com. There are certainly many similarities or commonalities that exist between humans and animals. Nevertheless, there are also some extremely important differences. One of these distinctions has to do with the instinctual behavior that seems overwhelmingly apparent in the animal world. In his book, The Sacred Canopy, sociologist Peter L. Berger sees a clear distinction between humans and animals right away from their birth. He states, Unlike the other higher mammals, who are born with an essentially completed organism, man is curiously unfinished at birth. Berger then goes on to explain, The non-human animals enter the world with highly specialized and firmly directed drives. As a result, it lives in a world that is more or less completely determined by its instinctual structure. This world is closed in terms of possibilities, programmed, as it were, by the animal's own constitution. Consequently, each animal lives in an environment that is specific to its particular species. There is a mouse world, a dog world, a horse world, and so forth. By contrast, man's instinctual structure at birth is both under-specialized and undirected toward a species-specific environment. Of course, this is not to say that humans will not at times operate or function in an instinctual manner. It would seem for the most part that humans have certain tendencies, appetites, or somewhat predictable desires. Nevertheless, one does have to admit that humans generally possess a greater propensity to act outside of or purposely contrary to their basic natural instinct. Let's take, for example, the fact that it is quite natural for a person lost in a great forest in an attempt to find their way out to end up going around in circles. This is a well-known human tendency. It is for this very reason that a compass can come in handy to keep one going or get one headed in the correct direction. Because it is also a common tendency for humans to want to doubt, disagree, or second-guess a compass reading, I personally know individuals who sometimes carry two compasses when entering large tracts of land. In one sense, this natural tendency is to overcome by purposeful reliance upon an objective reality like a compass, marked path, special noting the position of the sun, or by means of another objective device outside of themselves. For some, even the potential human tendency to doubt the compass when one is lost is also dealt with in an objective fashion. 
On the other hand, a dog will almost inevitably chase a cat or eat its vomit unless some sort of outward force or conditioning is applied to suppress or reshape such behavior. Nevertheless, normally such reshaping does not ultimately come from the creature itself, but rather from another outside force, such as a human. These types of instincts in animals may be contained, constrained, or reshaped, but they are not normally self-initiated by the animal itself, rather by some other outside force. When it comes to suffering, there also seems to be both similarities and differences between humans and animals. Apparently, animals and humans alike experience physical pain. To me, this seems to be an undeniable fact. Yet some who claim to be Champions for stopping all forms of animal suffering, including animals and non-abusive forms of entertainment, have absolutely no problem forcing a dog or cat to be neutered or spayed. They do this even though basic observation and the most rudimentary forms of reasoning indicates that both spaying and neutering can be painful to the animal upon which such a procedure is performed. Nevertheless, when we read the literature of many who could be quite appropriately classified as animal rights activists, these individuals are consistently conveying the suffering of animals in emotional terms. When such individuals want to support their own biased viewpoints, they frequently resort to an uncanny omniscience as to what an animal likes, dislikes, feels, experiences, perceives, etc., Quite obviously, many of these individuals do this as a means of attempting to support their unsubstantiated premises. One case in point is Anna C. Briggs, founder of the National Humane Education Society. She has encouraged people to stand up and speak for the animals who cannot speak for themselves. Interestingly, in her book, For the Love of Animals, Briggs relates how as a young girl, her mother made her give up a dog named Tut because... At the time, neither mother nor I knew about Spain. To mother, there was no alternative, but I was crushed at the idea of having to give Tut away. Although I won't take the time to go into detail, let me just say that spaying or neutering is certainly not the only method of controlling pet populations. I'm not opposed to spaying or neutering, yet the fact is neither spaying nor neutering are prerequisite for preventing an unwanted litter of puppies. In our current throwaway culture, this may appear to be helpful in curbing growing pet populations. In my opinion, the great emphasis upon spaying and neutering is really little more than an attempt to deal with an outward symptom of an unhealthy inner attitude towards pet ownership. Spaying or neutering does not automatically change an irresponsible pet owner into a responsible one. I fear that in some instances, spaying and neutering do little more than salve the conscience of the irresponsible pet owner. There are people who will have their female cat spayed, but then let that same cat, one of millions, roam freely through neighboring yards, parks, and meadows hunting for things like rabbits, mice, and songbirds. Unfortunately, spaying and neutering has far too frequently been presented in such a way that the very terms are equated by many to be synonymous with responsible pet ownership. But this is simply not the truth. In the end, it seems that a degree of old-fashioned pet ownership responsibility is what's really needed. Folks like Anna C. Briggs, as well as numerous high-profile Hollywood personalities, have been loudly and proudly opposed to animals experiencing any type of pain. Yet these same individuals stand as strong advocates of spaying and neutering. 
It is quite interesting to see how Annecy Briggs and others in her camp have tried to rationalize away such actual physical pain being forced on animals by humans. In Briggs's case, she does so by explaining, There's no tragedy in preventing a pet from reproducing. The sex life of a pet is governed by glandular discharges of hormones and is free of the social forces that surround human sexuality. If they are sterilized before they mate, the pets don't know about sex and don't miss it. Hmm. I wonder how Annecy Briggs became a specialist in this area. Did she conduct a scientific survey among these pets sterilized before they mated and those who had already experienced sex? Does Briggs have any concrete or even flimsy data to support her statement? If they are sterilized before they mate, the pets don't know about sex and don't miss it. This is just one such example of the kind of omniscient claims that some animal rights activists choose to rely upon to, in order to validate or defend their views. Unfortunately, they seldom seem to be questioned when making such outrageous statements. In fact, when someone does question the reasonableness of remarks like this, they are often spurned as being some sort of animal hater or at least branded as being insensitive. With Briggs' view, it would seem that we should never neuter or spay an animal that has participated in producing a litter of pups or kittens because they already know about sex and will therefore miss it. How can Briggs and others in her camp honestly speak for animals on such a topic? Do they have some sort of supernatural insight that the rest of the world doesn't possess? Are these folks regularly consulting pet psychic hotlines? One has to ask, aren't such advocates ultimately violating the very rights of the animals they say they are trying to protect by forcing these creatures to be sterilized? Furthermore, doesn't the requiring of all pets to be spayed or neutered before they may be removed from an animal shelter, as some shelters require, ultimately result in the unnecessary suffering of certain pets who may end up with responsible owners? And what about the animal rights activists who force their dogs and cats to be vegetarians? Such individuals claim that feeding their dog or cat things like steamed broccoli and bananas is beneficial. But isn't this type of force feeding unnatural for animals that are quite naturally equipped with teeth for tearing meat? Shouldn't this in some instances be classified as animal abuse? If animals suffer, and in my mind it is overwhelmingly obvious that they do, let's be completely honest about such suffering. Let's be honest. Even when such honesty flies directly in the face of the animal rights activists who pride themselves in preventing any and all forms of pain. Now, while the physical suffering of animals appears, at least at times, to closely parallel that of humans, it would seem that their psychological and emotional pains probably do not. As writer Hugh Sylvester in his book, Arguing with God, A Christian Examination of the Problem of Pain, points out, A large measure of the fear and distress that I feel in the presence of pain or death is a product of imagination or knowledge which animals show no sign of possessing. The dentist's waiting room is sometimes worse than his chair. Although some would want us to believe that animals suffer in the same way emotionally and psychologically as do humans, this remains to be proven. This is not to say that an animal can't experience or be conditioned to experience stress in various ways. Still, it is doubtful that they are affected by certain potential problems in the same way as humans. 
That is, unless, of course, they have had some sort of previous conditioning due to an unpleasant experience. A number of years ago, I was invited to visit a local locker plant near the country church where I pastored. It was a small business which was quite dependent upon area farmers who, on a certain day of the week, would bring in their livestock to be slaughtered and processed. In most cases, the animals that were brought in were used to feed the farmers and their families. I stood and watched for several hours. First, a cow would be killed, and as workers skinned that same cow or steer, the carcass of another animal was being split in half. Meanwhile, the next animal to be put to death was led into a pen and stood there, at least by appearance, totally oblivious to what was going on and what was about to take place. There seemed to be no degree of measurable anxiety over what was soon to transpire. I'm reminded of how this lack of concern by animals for the future is characterized in the seventh chapter of Proverbs. In this section of Scripture, Solomon warns a young man about the ways of an adulteress. Here he relates how, With persuasive words she led him astray. She seduced him with her smooth talk. All at once he followed her like an ox going to the slaughter, like a deer stepping into a noose till an arrow pierces his liver, like a bird darting into a snare, little knowing it will cost him his life. Proverbs seven twenty one to 23 Indeed, the inspired scriptures seem to support what I observed at the locker plant that day. While it is true that an ant or a squirrel will by instinct prepare for the future, animals do not seem to possess the same concern for the future that humans do. The health of one of our dogs is failing. For the most part, Lady is simply getting old. At 12 years of age and having been rescued from death row at a local pound when six months old, she has had a pretty decent life. Yet, Lady doesn't seem, at least to me, to be worried about what will, before long, soon take place. I love her and have certainly told her so often in these, her last days, and I inwardly dread the day she dies. But unlike a human, she shows no concern. No worry seems to grip her, no depression. I see no evidence of her, as I have from time to time observed in humans, recounting the true significance of her life. Although I can read her well, I see no outward behavior that would indicate she is asking herself things like, have I really accomplished anything in this life? Or what if I get to the point that I can't take care of myself? Or again, what if the family runs out of money to feed me in these latter years? What will I do then? One certainly has to wonder if animals experience the anxiety that is common among humans. Or, if they do, do they suffer such anxiety to the same degree? Again, Hughes makes an important point when he writes, Animals seem to live in the present and are unaffected by neurosis. The trouble is that we all project our feelings into animals, especially into pet animals. We thus suffer for them what they never feel themselves. How do I know? Well, of course, I don't know. And because of this, the argument will never be settled. Unlike many animal rights activists, Sylvester does not claim to know everything that an animal may be feeling or thinking. But it is not just suffering that we humans have been prone to project on animals. We've also been guilty of interpreting other forms of animal behavior with human descriptions. Sociologist Peter L. Berger sees that Animals become comic only when we view them anthropomorphically, 
that is, when we imbue them with human characteristics. Unfortunately, we humans have often shown ourselves to be notorious for tagging certain forms of animal behavior with very human terms. Frequently, we transfer human characteristics onto non-human creatures. It would seem that such transference ultimately clouds the issue as to whether or to just what degree animals suffer psychologically or emotionally. Of course, an honest discussion about some of the differences between humans and animals can be helpful. However, from a biblical perspective, the greatest variance between animals and humans is neither physical, psychological, or emotional. Rather, the most profound distinction has to do with the fact that only humans are described as having been created in the image of God, Genesis 1.27. Ultimately, this is the defining factor that makes humans unique from any and every other member of creation. In much of our modern society, animals are no longer treated as animals. For example, often the family pet has been elevated to a level of adoration that they were never designed to occupy. This happens even though animals were never created to replace or fulfill the need of human relationships. Indeed, animals are not to be ranked on a similar level with humans. According to the Bible, people are people and animals are animals. Most importantly, the Bible makes it abundantly clear that people have been and will always be more important than animals. In his book, For This Day, the late J.B. Phillips, who was highly esteemed for his translation of the New Testament in modern English, pointed out the need for a distinction in how we are to view and treat animals as opposed to humans. Phillips states, Cruelty to people, and especially to children, is a far more important question than cruelty to animals. I cannot forget that Hitler was very fond of dogs or that I have known animal lovers who would sit up all night with a sick dog, but who showed little or no love to their own families. It is indeed tragic when humans who have been made in the image of God are often treated with such little regard, while at the same time other non-human members of creation are so highly esteemed. Again, J.B. Phillips offers a plausible explanation for this misguided behavior. He explains, it is comparatively easy for the most decent people to love animals. Nearly always they are grateful and responsive and our love is returned. But loving people is different. It is costly and difficult. Our love may be rejected. The good we do may be misinterpreted. Most importantly, the Lord Jesus Christ himself made it clear that a person is worth much more than birds and animals. In the New Testament, Jesus encouraged his disciples by stating, You are worth more than many sparrows, Matthew 10, 31b. On another occasion, we are told how he entered a synagogue where there was a man with a shriveled hand who was in need of healing. Sadly, some who were present at that place of worship wanted to accuse Jesus of breaking the Sabbath. They tried to trap him by asking, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Matthew 12.10 To their utter agitation, Jesus went on to heal the man. But before he did, he said, If any of you has a sheep and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will you not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable is a man than a sheep? Matthew 12, verse 11 to 12. 
Indeed, in the eyes of Jesus, animals and people exist on completely different levels. Jesus Christ would strongly disagree with the statement, animals are people too. This and other associated passages reveals that our Lord viewed humans and animals as being vastly different. To Jesus, a person is worth far more than a sheep. When we come back, we'll make some uh, concluding remarks. In Hunting Arguments, Biblical Responses to a Loaded Issue, Dr. Tom Rako takes direct aim at some popular but faulty arguments wielded by hunters and animal rights activists alike. This unique work introduces readers to 10 major arguments which are frequently invoked by their users to either condemn or defend hunting. Hunting arguments include such emotional appeals and false premises as Thou shalt not kill. I eat everything I kill. I could never kill an animal. Hunting is my right as an American. Jesus was a vegetarian. And would Jesus shoot Bambi? Each chapter concludes with a set of discussion questions, making it a great resource for group studies. This book will help you to become an expert in knowing what the Bible has to say about hunting. To order your copy of Hunting Arguments, go to the Rock Dove Publications website, rockdove.com. Visit rockdove.com today. We've been looking at the argument, animals are people too. Now, certainly all creatures have a degree of intrinsic value. This stems from the simple fact that the Lord of the universe created them. And as the familiar adage goes, God doesn't make junk. However, not all of God's creatures have been made in his image. The primary flaw with the argument, animals are people too, lies in the fact that the Word of God makes it clear that only humans have been made in his image. Only humans are allowed to claim or accept this crown. It is certainly true that we humans do not always act in a manner fitting for the crown, yet humans and animals are distinctly different. Yes, what sets humans and animals far apart despite their extensive similarities, is that humans alone have been made in God's likeness, James chapter 3, verse 9b. Well, uh, next time we'll be looking at another hunting argument. Thank you so much for joining us here on the Rock Dove Publications Quill, and I hope you will join us again next time. been listening to the Rock Dove Publications podcast with your host, Dr. Tom Rako. This program has also been brought to you by the Quilted Arrow, home of intelligent, stylish, field-bred English pointers with bloodline streams from Hall of Fame champion Guardrail. Thank you so much for listening. Now this is Beth Rako inviting you to join us again next time on the Rock Dove Publications podcast. <music>